Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1988 John Sayles film, Eight Men Out. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, I'm going to start with my with my uh, typical opening question because I'm actually really curious about what your history is with this film. So this came out in 88. I'm presuming you were aware of sales already. Was this a movie you anticipated? Was this a movie you you saw in theaters? Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. To kind of all of those. Um, I first encountered sales through his first film, uh, the 1980 Return of the Secaucus Seven which was also uh, Dave Strathern, who was Eddie Seacott. That was also his film uh, debut. Uh, he and Sales were uh, classmates at Williams College, so they, they go way back. Um, so I've mentioned this many times before. There was a little artsy theater in Brunswick, Maine, where Bowdoin College is. And so I, I would have seen the film. It came out in 80. I think I probably actually saw it in 80, maybe early 81. And it followed on the heels of the big chill. Um, and it's a very big chill-like film, and I think Return of Sokoka 7 is a much better film, much more interesting film to me. So I got hooked on sales, and I basically watched everything that sales uh, put out as it, as it came out, including 8 Men Out in, in 88. Do you remember your impression of watching this? Because I will say this was a movie that I... Um, was ex was excited about not because of john sales but because um you know I, I didn't see this when it came out but i saw this probably 89 90 um probably post field of dreams i saw this movie i got obsessed with joe jackson and this story <laughs> so like i was excited about this movie um so i have distinct memories of my first impression of watching this i'm curious if you remember what it felt like to watch the first time yeah there, there were two things for me one was um I don't know, a, a little disappointed. I, I guess I I felt the first time I watched it as though I couldn't figure out what the dramatic tension was. It, it felt slack to me in some ways. And then the other thing was, which uh, Roger Ebert echoes in his review, um, I had a hard time keeping everybody straight. Um, and I, I just kind of, so I came kind of, I came across the, uh, away from the film feeling like, well, I was glad there was a lot of vintage baseball. That's really interesting. But I, I don't really know that I understand the Black Sox scandal any better than I did going into it. And maybe I was in it, you know, as I rewatched the film, I think I must have been kind of inattentive to a lot of things that were going on. The thing that made the strongest impression on me was the um, relationship between Studs Terkel uh, playing uh, one of the sports writers and John Sales himself playing Ring Lardner. I really enjoyed their relationship. And that, that probably made the strongest impression on me. Yeah, I will say disappointment was my initial impression too. And it, part of it is because I loved the movie Field of Dreams. Yeah. That was so magical to me. That introduced Joe Jackson to me. It introduced the the Black Sox scandal to me. So I, I remember reading books about this. Um, I was sort of obsessed with it. And so I was very excited for for the movie. And I don't remember why I felt a little bit like... I think it just paled in comparison to the magic of Field of Dreams. And this is a movie that is um, very much not filled with magic, <laughs> you know, and, and even like, it's interesting to think about the characterization of, of Shoeless Joe in, you know, in Field of Dreams, you have him played by uh, Ray Liotta and he's in, you know, he has the, a kind of, he has a charisma to him, you know, that's like, and then here, Joe Jackson, they're really playing up a different aspect. I mean, it's mm. hard to imagine the character Ray Liotta's playing and the character that D.B. Sweeney is playing as the same person, unless you think, well, 
Joe continued to develop over his life and after his death, he continued to sort of, cause it's like, I, otherwise I can't see the connection here. Um, but I will say upon rewatching this, I thought this is a really good movie when I watched, I don't know that I'd really seen it since probably the early mid nineties. And I walked away from this now feeling like, because I was, I think I was prepared for it, for all the things that it wasn't going to be that I could watch it with a different set of eyes. And I actually think this is a really good movie. I'm curious what your impressions were this time around. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, one thing that you will always get from a, um, a John Sales film is you will always get a great script. I mean, Sales is primarily a novelist. He, he wrote novels before he made films and he continued, continue, has continued to write novels. Uh, and sometimes people find his films a little talky. Sometimes they feel like he doesn't have the visual flair, but of course those are, um, uh, criticisms have been made of Billy Wilder as well, uh, so it uh, doesn't bother me too much. I, I like a talky film. I like I like films where people sound intelligent. Um, but my, since we have watched fairly recently Field of Dreams, I kind of want to play off on that a little bit in terms of how I responded to the film this time. Um, one is Field of Dreams is not is a film that I think has a broad appeal. I don't think you have to be a baseball fan to enjoy Field of Dreams. And part of it is because so much of it is about Kevin Costner's relationship with um, uh, with uh, with the other characters and um, and and but okay, so that's one difference. I think that Eight Men Out is a lot about actually watching vintage baseball. So if you're a baseball fan, that's going to kind of get you there. But the other way in which I think the movies are similar but take different directions is they are ultimately films about America. What, what is your vision of what it means to be America? And especially, what is the meaning of baseball as America's pastime? So you get that James Earl Jones speech about, you know, America. And I mean, it's been used in TV commercials recently. You know, America's rolled on like a steamroller. We've always had baseball. Um, and you get in Field of Dream, in, in Eight Men Out, you get the comment, gamblers eight, baseball zero. And you get the notion that this great American pastime is actually pretty tainted. And what it does is it reveals the underbelly of, uh, of American society in terms of the gamblers and the, the dark side of American capitalism in terms of the tight-fistedness of Charles Comiskey. So I, I, so I think in that sense, both films are, about, are not about baseball. They're actually about America. And there are different visions of America. And most people will say, well, you know, John Sayles, he's, his politics are on the left. And so this, of course, is what you're going to get from John Sayles, this kind of critique. And Field of Dreams is a little, is a little more rah-rah. Well, we won't worry about racism. We won't worry about sexism or classism. We'll just say it's a wonderful country because of baseball. So I think those are that's where those films meet and then where they kind of depart. I think another thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to struggle to articulate this, but I feel like they're both also different approaches to thinking about justice and thinking mm -hmm. about like his justice and history and like how um all the different understandings of just i mean to the extent that field of dreams it's justice is sort of this spiritual thing in the next life even kind of thing it's like okay well yes this happened to joe but like is there is there a chance for, it's a redemption story right and, and mm -hmm. all you know and it's about redeeming relationships ray's relationship with his father so 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 to that degree it is about justice this is a question or this is a movie about justice to the extent that it's also about like the justice system and it's about like different kinds of justice different expressions of justice this is making lots of claims about those things one of the things that i think is really interesting um is 
the effect that both of these movies ha- have on the historical sense of justice for a character like Joe Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause there, there's a, a small moment in the movie when the lawyers are in, inter- when the lawyers are being introduced and the, the, the head lawyer walks around and says, you know, this is the Ty Cobb, the Tris speaker and the Zach wheat of the legal world. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think about that and it's like, okay, somebody today, a baseball fan today knows who Ty Cobb is. Ty Cobb is, transcend i mean he's a complicated character but transcendently famous in baseball history trish speaker less so zach wheat even less so great players but like and it's like joe jackson and trish speaker are actually pretty similar players if you look at their careers it's like joe jackson ultimately has a level of notoriety and fame a person is more likely to know joe jackson than trish speaker so yes. there's these also speak to this kind of like historical justice or struggling with that 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 because of this, he actually kind of wins in a way uh, that way, thinking about these, you know, thinking about these films and how for some reason in the late, uh, the late eighties, we were really obsessed with this story. Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting. You know, one of the things that struck me the first time I saw the film and and to a certain degree, the second time is the degree to which Joe Jackson isn't really highlighted in the film. Um, and yet he's the one that gets the coda, right? He's the one that gets that legend, you know, the legend. And it's one of those things nobody's ever been able to nail down, right? Did Joe Jackson really go play semi pro pro ball? And I, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's just great that sales included that, that particular scene. But I think that also points to another significant difference between difference between the two films. And that is that, uh, eight men out like Gosford park and, uh, rules of the game. It's an ensemble film. And even though there are a couple of characters to get a little more screen time, you know, John Cusack's Buck Weaver and uh, David Strathairn's uh, Eddie Seacott, even though they get a little more screen time, ultimately it's really about, it's really about, it's really about a group of guys. And it's really about large kind of social groups. Whereas ultimately what holds Field of Dreams together, as you already pointed out, is it's a redemption story. It's ultimately about Kevin Costner's character and, and his and his father. And those are very different kinds of arcs to follow. Right. And I would say, I would say, you know, to, to think about sales and relate this movie in relationship to Altman rules and, and rules of the game, it's not just about a group of guys, it's about multiple groups of guys in different areas whose lives are cr- are crossing and intersecting. Um yeah, and, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Before we get into specifics in the movie, I'm also curious when you first saw this movie, how aware of you were how aware of this story were you? Like like what did the Black Sox or Joe Jackson mean to you? Yeah, I mean I knew the story. I, I didn't know the details, but I, I, I knew who the Black Sox were. I knew the story. I knew that I didn't know anything about Buck Weaver, and and I I, I knew nothing about the way that he continued uh, continually tried to clear his name. But I knew there was, I knew there were were questions about the degree to which Joe Jackson had actually participated in in the uh, in the scandal. And of course, like most Americans, I know say don't say it ain't so, Joe. Right. Um, <laughs> I want to just point to my level of obsession with this story at the time. I, in ninth grade, we had our first high school class on public speaking and we had to make, and we had to do all the different types of speeches. So we had to do a persuasive speech. And I remember making, uh, I was probably five minutes, but it felt like it was an hour long persuasive speech about why Joe Jackson should be in the baseball hall of fame. (laughs) And I, and I like, and I thoroughly researched that to the degree you could in 1990 or 91. So this was, this was very much in my conscious. So I think that was also part of my, initial disappointment was I 
was the fact that Joe is really not at the center of this movie. And actually he's, um, he's an interesting character to think about, but he's not a particularly interesting character to watch, you know? Um, and, and I think that, you know, and I, you know, I don't know how accurate a characterization the, the DB Sweeney version of him is. I don't think the Ray Liotta one's very accurate either. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, but, but I do, I do think they are, um, having takes on elements of, of Joe Jackson, my favorite Joe Jackson story. And this, I just tell this story to sort of point to him being a little bit more savvy maybe than, Mm -hmm. um, than what we see in this in 1911, I think it was 1911. He was still, he was playing with Cleveland at the time and he was in a contract dispute with his, um, with his owner. And I'm going to make these, these numbers up. Um, but it's a lot like the Eddie Seacott deal where the, the owner wanted to pay him, I'll say 2000 and Joe wanted to make 5,000. And instead Joe said, if I hit 400, you'll pay me 10,000. If I don't, you don't have to pay me. And he hit 408 that year. (laughs) So like, you know, and, and, and lost the batting title to Ty Cobb who hit 420. (laughs) But, um, but like that story doesn't match the DB Sweeney character you see here. Right. So like there is, there is, he's a richer, more interesting character, I think in that way, but that put that aside, like, um, so I think I went in and was just a little disappointed by him this time around. I just didn't worry so much about that and was like, okay, they're, they're doing a version of Joe Jackson here. Yeah. It, it did bug me a little bit um, because the the way it seemed as though the film equated illiteracy with a kind of naivete. Yeah. You know, I, I have an uncle who built a very successful business. Um, I did not discover until years later that he was illiterate. Hmm. Um, and he was probably a millionaire in, in the days when the millionaires actually meant something. So, yeah. So the idea that because he was illiterate, he was somehow naive, um, that, that troubled me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, getting into this movie, this movie, I love the open of this movie because since it is this ensemble and because you're getting introduced to a team that you're going to need to know these players, you're going to need to know the gamblers. You're going to need to know Kamitsky. You're going to need to know the kids. You're going to need to know the sports writers. The first probably 10 minutes of this movie at that opening game, he does such a great job of introducing everyone. And Mm -hmm. even like Fine. I, I read in one of the reviews how artfully he finds a way to tell you this is this somebody to, to say, oh, that's Chick Gandal. And like, here's two things about him. And it's like it keeps doing that. And but also cross cutting between like, here's what Kamitsky's saying to the reporters and here's what's happening. And yes. it's, it's like it is it is really kind of masterfully done. And it's it's really fun to watch. I, I think this movie starts with a bang in that way. I, I agree. I, I also, even even before the movie starts, just the opening credits. I I, I just love the visuals, right? You, how you how you how you ascend and then you come back down. It's like he's kind of foreshadowing the whole arc of the film. Uh, I I also love the way that uh, the the Ring Lardner and the Hugh Fulgen characters operate as a kind of uh, mini Greek chorus. You know, just just to just to kind of help you stay straight on the on the action. Their their comments. Uh, as you go along are really very helpful because they they really give the audience I think we've we talked a little bit about this with both Godfrey Park and um, Rules of the Game you know when you have an ensemble like that where's your point of view uh, and in a way those two guys are kind of your your point of view 
Yeah, I mean, and and I would say, you know, I'm I'm not good at picking up on these things, but I got about probably 30 minutes in and was like, oh, Greek chorus. That's exactly what people mean when they say that, because it does feel like you're reading Sophocles and like, let's bring the chorus into comment. Even he even sings a song. Oh yes, right, which is a true Ring Lardner story. He did that on one of the train rides. He sang, "I'm forever blowing ball games" after <laughs> after I think game two. Um, so so like like I I really do love the way that functions. I think it's very interesting that sales puts himself at the center of this movie. Cause I, so I was curious, like, is, does he act much and he's in some of his other movies, but it doesn't look like in very big ways. He is a major character in this movie. He has a pretty big role in return of the Secaucus seven and actually brother from another planet. In both of those, he, I would say he has lead roles. I don't know that he acted in anything after this film. I didn't check on that, but I don't have a recollection of him being in any films of his own after this. And I don't think he ever acted for anybody else. Um, I don't know if he put himself in to save money or if he put himself in just cause uh, you know, it's a great, he's written a great part and he wants it. So yeah. And I will say he does a good job. Like, like I, he doesn't yeah. stand out. I only, I only knew that he stood out to me because I've seen pictures of John sales. And I was like, I think that's him. And apparently he looks a lot like Ring, Ring Lardner Sr. Like that well, was, that's yeah. another piece of it. Actually, the revelation to me was Studs Terkel. Um, I mean, I'm watching the film and, I, and I, I couldn't, I didn't remember the whole cast. And I'm watching this guy. I'm thinking, who is that? Who is this Hugh Fullerton guy? And I realized, that's right, it's Studs Terkel. And he was such a natural. Um, yeah. You know, and and he was he was a pretty big deal at the time the film came out. Some of our listeners may not know Studs Terkel, but he was you know a great a great journalist and uh, writer of nonfiction, and uh, so he was he was a really great casting choice. Yeah, a Pulitzer Prize winner. Pulitzer he Prize, shows up yeah. in a lot of uh, in a lot of documentaries. He's got a great he's got a great look and a great voice. Um, it's like you couldn't have cast somebody to do the performance that he does because of it's just he has a kind of like. Uh, gravity's not exactly the right word, but there is something about him that he feels so natural in 1919 somehow, even though he's not from that era. But he's so Chicago. Yes. Uh, that's what I love about him. He's just, he seems to exude Chicago-ness, whatever that is. Yes, yes. Now, one of the things that I, that struck me about this movie, um, watching it this time, and, and some of the reviews I read talked about this like it was a problem with the movie and i think it's a feature of the movie mm. is how much this movie move it, it is so many genres of movie <laughs> you know it is like like I, I was going through and thinking like there are there are distinct moments when this is a when you're like i am watching a sports movie i am mm. watching baseball scenes there are moments where it's like oh this i'm watching a heist movie is what i'm watching and then i'm watching a courtroom drama and then i'm watching a journalism and it's just like like i was kind of blown away how that should be a mess. It should be a mess that it's because, because some of the reviews and I could see this upon first viewing, look at it and say like, he should have just picked one of those angles and like, mm -hmm. this should have been a journalism movie mm -hmm. or this should have been a gambler's movie or this should have, he should have made the sports movie that I think a lot of people maybe thought it was going to be or something. Yeah. Um, but I actually look at this and say that this is a major strength of the movie is that I think it does move pretty 
effortlessly between these things. Um, and, and I think the story, the story he wants to tell needs those different pieces. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've never read the book on which the film is based. The book is also called eight men out, uh, came out, I think in the sixties actually. So I don't know to what degree he's borrowed the structure from the book or whether the book is kind of the journalism part. And then he's put the, then he's figured out how to put the baseball movie kind of on, on top of that. But I agree, Sam, I don't, I don't see any other way to tell the story. And it's, it's interesting. You also identified some of the critics like this and some don't. That's really interesting to me. That's kind of how the critical response to the film has divided. So um, Ebert didn't think it worked at all. Uh, Ebert thought it was confusing and he didn't come out of it really understanding what was going on. Janet Maslin in the New York Times praised the film for being crystal clear that she understood exactly <laughs> what had happened. So, so I mean, that, that's, and, and, and in a way, I feel like my first, my first viewing was more like Ebert's and my second viewing was more like Maslin's. And I don't know if that's because it was a second viewing or I think more likely, um, and this can be the weakness of the kind of structure you just talked about. I, I went into the film this time knowing what the film was going to do. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a film where if you go into the film and you think either it's going to be Field of Dreams or Pride of the Yankees um, or Spotlight, you know, I mean, if, if you go into a thing, it's going to be any of those things. I think you're going to be disappointed because it's none of those things. But if you go into it not expecting a particular type of movie, then I think you're much more open to what you're describing as a kind of multi-genre approach. Yeah, or I think if as you're watching it, you are a fan of one of those things and you're like, Oh, okay. This like, so when you get to pretty early in the movie, it starts to feel like a, like a heist movie where they're getting the crew together. And it's like, I am into this. And then all of a sudden it stops being that for a while. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of feel like, why did you take away the thing I was enjoying? Likewise, if you're, mm -hmm. I think as a kid, I wanted it to, I wanted more baseball. Yeah. And I was like, why do we, why do, why are we not seeing baseball the way I wanted to see it or, or see more of that? Um, and so I, I think, I think that's definitely a piece of it, but I do think on a second viewing, I had let go of all of that. Yeah. Um, and, and so then it felt, it felt pretty effortless. Uh, the move, the movements, as you think about the different genres of this movie, are there, are there, um, ones that you think are stronger or weaker ones that stand out to you? I kind of just want to talk through some of these maybe. Well, I, I, I guess the ones I, I really like, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying, Sam, because sometimes that can, as you said, that can kind of stop you because you say, I really enjoyed this part of the movie, but I wish there was more of it. Um, you know, it's funny. I went into it thinking I wanted to see a lot more of the baseball, but I actually became more fascinated by the gamblers. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I thought the scenes when the gamblers are, you know, trying to negotiate with the ball players and, 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 then, and then trying to kind of uh, play, play against each other. And I think that, you know, particularly Michael Lerner's performance as, as Rothstein, I mean, he was fascinating. Every time he was on the screen, I wanted to watch him. And I, I just love that scene when he goes to hear the, um, the, the, the ticker tape report of the first game. And, you know, second pitch, Seacott hits the batter. And he just walks away. He doesn't, he doesn't need to know anymore. And, 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 and there's both a kind of um, tragedy in this reduction of baseball to not just a business proposition as it is for Comiskey, but to a, a literal gamble as mm -hmm. it is for these guys. And yet it's fascinating to watch. It's like a train wreck and you can't take your eyes away. So every time the gamblers were, were, on, uh, were, were on the screen, whether it was Christopher Lloyd and, and his partner or the Kevin Tige character, the guy from Boston, I just thought they were all really strong and interesting characters. And watching them try to kind of 
politicians. They're involved in their own scramble to try to pull off their their heist. And so mm -hmm. I thought that was great. Well, and and that that the, that Rothstein scene. The other great line is when the guy comes and says, "Can I get you a chair, Mister Rothstein?" And he says, "I won't be here long." <laughs> he just, you know, and and yeah, he just needed to see the one thing. Um, I'm also always fascinated by the thought of like watching a baseball game like that over ticker tape, and like like I would actually kind of love to watch a game like that. That would be kind of fascinating. Well, actually, the 21st version, uh, is the 21st century right? version of that is game day, which actually right. I do I do game day, and I and I and I think that you know, so yeah, there's a little bit of animation in game day, but basically it's it, it it's a century old uh, uh, technique. Yeah, I loved in terms of the gamblers. I loved the Abe Attell character. Yeah. Um, I, I think that was a great performance and I love how he is, you have the people at the bottom and the people at the top and he is this person trying to work the angles in the middle. Um, and I love when you're, when you're watching at the end, the gamblers kind of flee and you see him, he's, you know, practicing up on his Spanish and you also see that he has a broken nose and you're yes, like, yes. okay, <laughs> some stuff has happened that, uh, and I just love that as like, we don't know, but we kind of know what has happened. Yeah, I, I, you're right, Sam. I love that ellipsis. It's like, yeah, so how did you come by that broken nose? I, I would also point out, it's just interesting to me when I talk about the interest of those gamblers that of course, you know, you have, you have Ring Lardner uh, as one of the characters here and of course, uh, he ends up, uh, I think these, these gamblers are sort of an inspiration for something like Guys and Dolls, you know, mm -hmm. you can see leading to that. Um, as a sports movie, because that, that was my initial hook into this, it was interesting watching this again. Um, I love the first the the first scene, you know, before the World Series game that that or the the first game the, or the last game of the year, I guess, because you mm -hmm. get to see these like how good this team is and you get this introduction. And then it's like how hard it is to watch those first two games that they throw. Yeah. But what I love about it is the, the Dick, the first Dickie Kerr game feels so joyful to watch. Yes. I, and, and it's because you're kind of bogged down by watching, thinking like, Oh, what must it have been like to watch these guys not try, you know? And, and sometimes the, the degree they go to like drop a ball or the, the biggest one I think is when Gandil's running from second to third and the guys, bo the pitcher's bobbling the ball and he's like looking at him trying to run slower. So he'll get thrown out. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, and those are so hard to watch in a good way that it makes the joy of the Dickie Kerwin just feel great. And you just feel like, Oh, I, I kind of want this back. I want like the, I want the purity of the, of people just playing the game again. And I think that was really effective. That's and, and actually that's another fascinating thing to go back to what you said about how sales kind of sets the characters up. One of the things he sets up really clearly at the very beginning uh, of the film is that we have factions on the team. And so there's there's already this split in the in the players for variety of reasons. You know, there's sometimes it's educational level. They got you know the kid they call the character they call it, the college kid, but, it, but it's, it's it's really interesting. You know that we like to think of sports teams as units, unified units, and that that was not the case. It also reminds me. I can't remember the name of the pitcher, but there was one of the one of the pitchers that was injured, who would not have participated in in the scandal and. I was reading that if he had been able to pitch, chances are they couldn't have pulled off. They may not have been able to pull off throwing the series because he would have, like Dickie Kerr, he would have he would have pitched legitimate games. And so, but then of course the film shows you what happens. You know, you can't get in bed with the gamblers and then go back on the deal. Right. Uh, you know, so 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 even when they start to try to win legitimately, of course they realize, uh, you know, you have the threat against their wives and family. 
Yeah, I love I loved the double cross that happens partway through, and even and the gamblers crossing the players too. Of like, oh, of course, you know the, the the great line about like if if you want to get a I'm going to get it wrong, but if you want to get a draft horse to work a full day, you know what you feed it just enough to know just he's hungry, hungry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's and then yeah, and then this whole idea of like, what's great about this movie is you're watching this. There's take the reporters out because they're not really characters. They're the Greek chorus, right? Like everybody else. It's like, everybody's pretty compromised. Just about everybody's pretty compromised in some way, other than like your Dickie Kerr's or Eddie Collins, people like that. It's like, who am I rooting for? Am I, am I, cause I kind of like I'm on this and sales definitely wants to put you on the side of at least some of these players, but you're like, but I'm, so I'm rooting for the people who are throwing the world series to get money. It's just like, it's great. I, I really, the way that he makes this complicated where I'm also excited about them losing games because, it, because I've gotten into the heist enough to be like, maybe they're going to pull this off. Well, I also think in terms of who are you rooting for? I also think it's fascinating that I am both rooting for Eddie Seacott, even though I know he's going to throw the game mm-hmm. and I'm rooting for Buck Weaver. Yes. And, and, and so these are two guys who are, you know, sort of, you know, Buck Weaver sort of in, in on it and he isn't in on it. And Eddie Seacott is in on it because, I mean, Eddie Seacott has both really personal reasons for being in on it. And he has, in a sense, he's making a statement about, about the kind of, about the way that uh, uh, somebody like Comiskey is really exploiting the players and mm-hmm. you get diversions that in baseball today, right? You send, you send a guy down so he doesn't have his 60 games for seniority or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, so, so there's all that manipulation continues, but in, the, in that time, you know, for him to be sat, sat down for five starts or whatever it is. So you, you completely sympathize with him and then it gets complicated, right? Because as I just said, he tries to, he, he really wants to, he really wants to win, but now he knows he can't win because his wife is at risk. And so it's also very, um, there is a real strong human interest the way you see the wife and the kids in the stands and you see Eddie throwing the game and you see how she responds. And I mean, so that's, it's like there's drama within drama, which is really beautifully layered. And I think that's how you can tell that sales is a novelist mm-hmm. because he really knows how to create plots and subplots and get them to move together. And then uh, what, and then the, the other genre that I, I is one of my favorite, I love courtroom movies. Mm-hmm. So I love that, you know, one of my favorite things in literature is is you're when you're reading a novel like the brothers karamazov and you're like this is the greatest thing i've ever read and then you get to the final third and it's like why don't i give you a courtroom drama as well thank you dostoevsky <laughs> sales does that here too you it's it's this baseball movie this movie about gamblers all this stuff and then it's like now we're going to get just a little taste of courtroom stuff which i really love and this is where like um i start to really understand how much sales is making weaver the character like i i went to this for joe jackson and it turns out that i'm here for weaver yeah you know that 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 he because what's interesting even about the coda at the end it's not just that there are these people seeing joe jackson and there's this you know all these these myths that are even told in field of dreams about joe jackson playing in other places that it's not just that but it's but the last words are bucks that buck is there watching joe and, you know, and he's saying, no, that's not him. All those guys are gone, you know, and he's like, and he's one of the, like, like that's, the movie is heartbreaking around Weaver. And I think Cusack is really, really good in this movie. And he doesn't, he, he doesn't stand, um, he doesn't stand out in a way that's distracting. Cause I, when, 
we have a long history with John Cusack in movies. Likewise, we have a long history with someone like Charlie Sheen. And I'm really happy. I'm really happy that Hap Felsch is not a major character because that would that would be <laughs> distracting. But Cusack doesn't feel that way to me. He feels like real. Like that is. I really like that piece of casting. Yeah, I mean Cusack. He's he's one of those actors. I yeah, I, I love him and everything he does. And he um he's got you know he's got that kind of um. Uh, genuineness about him, I think, as a, as a character and as a, as, a, as an actor, that I think make it gives it a real impact. And you also see him, I think, you know, struggling with um, kind of idealism. You know, I, I love the scenes with him and the kids. Right when he tells the kids, you know, things get more complicated as you as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and, and I think the painful thing for him is that he learn he learns a lesson, unfortunately, about about the difference between an individual, an individual's integrity and commitment to a group. So, you know, for example, he keeps arguing, look, I hit 327, you know, which was high for him. Um, you know, I, I obviously did my best, but he gets tossed out of baseball because he didn't go to the, well, there wasn't a commissioner, but he didn't go to Comiskey or anybody else and tell them what was going on. He tried to point them in that direction, but he never actually came clean about it. So there's a sense in which, yes, he has his own personal integrity, but he does have a commitment to the guys. Mm-hmm. And so he gets kind of caught between those two things, you know, between, and he thinks um, idealistically, all I have to do is perform with integrity and I won't be tarred with this brush. Right. Well, unfortunately, and, that's not that's not the case. And what I love is that that's even one of the lessons he teaches to the kids. Right. Yes. He's like, you got to stack. You got to stand up for your guys, because if yes. you're not going to do that, nobody like it's in. So and when he does that, you're thinking about it in terms of the lesson he's telling the kids. And you're like, yeah, that's a really good thing to tell them. But at the same time, you're thinking what he's actually saying is the thing that gets him into trouble, yeah. you know, and 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 I yeah, I so so he gets to be like this you know, one of the central tragic figures of, of the story. Um, you've also talked a lot about, uh, David Strathairn, who I think is such perfect casting because when you look at old photos of mm-hmm. ball players from the teens and twenties, they look like David Strathairn. <laughs> like it's, it's the most perfect visual piece of casting I've ever seen to the point where every time I see him, I think, oh, there's a ball player from 1915. <laughs> Yeah, I say, and yeah, it's it's beautifully cast, and um, Strathairn's got that he's got that distinctive voice. Mm-hmm. There's a there, there's a kind of melancholy built into his voice, which is really I I I just I just love listening to to Strathairn, let alone watching him. Uh, I also loved uh, John Mahoney as the manager. Um, mm-hmm. That that character jumped out to me a lot more, I, I, you know. And again, as somebody who wants to believe that like he knows what's going on, but kind of is in denial, like wants to stay in denial about it, but he's also going to commit. He goes to Kamitsky about it. Um, but then when he's out, when he's on the stand, like he stands up for his guy. Like it's, I, I love the, I love the conversations he has with Buck and how that, I love that relationship. And there's just the conversations he's having with, um, with all, with all of the, the players. I really like that. And it sets up, he he's central to what I think is one of the most uh, amazing shots in this movie or scenes in this movie, which goes back to um, Altman and goes back to Renoir rules of, rules of the game. The scene, the long tracking shot in the hotel where mm-hmm. they keep going from room to room. Mm-hmm. That is one continuous, yes. one continuous shot. And there are 
conservatively six or seven stories going on. And sometimes a story is just, you see somebody leave a room or you see, you know, somebody go into a room and a camera pulls into the room just enough to see who else is in there and it pulls back out. And it's kind of staying mostly with Mahoney. That is a brilliant piece of filmmaking. It's because it he is accomplishing a lot. It, it, it is. And I think it's a, it's a rebuke to those who think that sales doesn't have any visual flair because that's really, it's a really well edited film. Uh, mm -hmm. And sales actually in the, in the, and he did not edit this particular film, but I think he's, he's got an editor that's got the kind of the right sensibility for what he's trying to do. Um, so I will say, uh, as I got to the end of this movie, I was thoroughly depressed. <laughs> uh, which I think is is what he's going because it just it feels like just all these kinds of binds that you're in. It's like okay, well I don't I feel for this person, but I also know they did this, and like I, you know, and and, and I, I actually love the the you know, and this is kind of the the lefty John Sales stuff about like how the these guys get um, these guys are the ones who get punished, and they did something wrong. But he's showing all of the other people who are really profiting off of this. And they're, you know, kind of walking away clean from this. In fact, you know, they're sitting around telling stories about how they pulled this off, things like this. And I also love this being a movie where I think most, I mean, the title tells you what's going to happen. So I don't think anybody went into this movie thinking, huh, maybe they're going to get away with this. <laughs> you know, like, but you get to that courtroom and you get the the judgment from the courtroom. And, I, and like, I know the first time I watched this, I didn't know the story enough. So I assumed like, all right, they're going to get found guilty. And then they're acquitted and everybody's celebrating. And I'm thinking, but that's not what happened. And then you get Landis come in and he realized, oh, this is where we get back to things about justice too. Like justice means different things. There is the justice of the courtrooms. There is the justice of history. There is spiritual, you know, next world kind of justice there is the justice of Kennesaw Landis too. So like, like I, um, you know, and, and it makes you question all of those things. I, I, I really, really like how this film was built. Well, I mean, it puts you in a really interesting bind, right, Sam, because when they're found not, when they're found not guilty, you think, well, that's wrong that they are guilty, right? Right. right? They are guilty. Pretty clearly. So, so they shouldn't get off and they get off, but then Kennesaw Mountain Landis's punishment seems too harsh, right? I mean, there's no, or, or at least it's it, it's undifferentiated, you yes. know. There's and, and you know. And so the other thing I want to say about that though is that Sales does a really masterful job at the end in a way that you don't really know. He compresses two years mm -hmm. because they played a whole other season, right? There was no there was no grand jury indictment until uh, until September of 1920, which then potentially cost them another pennant. Because they were in a in a battle with Cleveland, and and it's true that things kind of needed to go their way. They needed to win like three games in a row, and Cleveland needed to lose for them to get the pennant. But they had a shot. But the indictments came out, and Comiskey suspended the seven players that were still on the team because Gandil did not come back to the team that year. So they lost the 1920 pennant as a result. And then the actual courtroom scenes are not until July of 21. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing plays out over almost two years and sales has just, I mean, there, there's the dramatic compression, right? Sales just compresses that beautifully. So it's not false to history, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's compressing it in a way that I think gives it the maximum kind of impact. I need to say one of the things about, about sales casting too. We talked about Strathairn just looking like a ball player from then. 
the actual Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis is a very peculiar lo- looking guy, and he found somebody who looks exactly like him. Oh, he, he nailed that. It was like he it was like he'd reanimated him. It was yes. amazing. And he sounds just like I imagine Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Yes, I was I was deeply struck by that. Is there anything you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah, a couple things. Um, I, I do want to say that you know the we haven't said much about the actor who plays uh, Comiskey, Clifton James. Uh, he's really good, and uh, listeners may remember him from teen, from Lone Star. Uh, he played Hollis Pogue in, in Lone Star, and he was very, very good in that. Um, so um, listeners who have Minnesota ties will like to know that the uh, Chicago White Sox are the St. Paul Saints. Uh, Comiskey bought the uh, the team back in 18, um, what was it, 1894, I believe it was. It was in Sioux City. And uh, he moved it to St. Paul, renamed them the St. Paul Saints, uh, and then eventually took them to Chicago when the American League was was started. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, I picked this film in particular to coincide with the World Series going on right now. And it seems almost too good to be true that in the World Series this year, we have the Houston Astros who committed one of the great cheating scandals of the of the 21st century in the in their in their ninth in their 2017 uh, stealing of signs and it just I what can you say it just goes to show that technology is simply an amplifier even though their technology was 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 pretty um, pretty basic right just banging banging mm-hmm. uh, on, on, a, on a garbage can so it just goes to show you know and and we, we've of course you know since the white Sox scandal we lived through the um the steroid scandal um and then we, we've we still have pete rose uh not allowed to be in the hall of fame and you know if you're going to put pete rose in the hall of fame you better put shoeless joe jackson in the, in the hall of fame those those two things are kind of joined at the hip so it, it's interesting to me that baseball takes this high it prides itself on taking these high moral stances when in fact the game has always been plagued by various kinds of moral moral failures. And I guess that's where I go back to the field of vision of the game, right? That somehow it aspires to be something more noble than it is. And in that sense, it really does express the American uh, paradox, I guess you could say, that we want to believe in American exceptionalism. Uh, and yet there's, there's lots of, uh, of warts on that particular portrait. Yeah, and in this this plays with that with the. I mean, I think this this and Field of Dreams are such different movies, and they pair so nicely together to think about America, to think about American heroes and American dreams, and and yeah, I, I, hundred percent. I, I, this movie has elevated so much from. If you had asked me, you know, a month ago, what my thoughts were on Eight Men Out, I would have said it was okay. Like like it was not what I wanted, but it was okay. And now. Um, I, my son didn't get a chance to watch this with me and I'm really excited to, to watch it with him. Um, and, cause I, I just kind of want to watch it again. I really, yeah. really, really <laughs> liked it. Uh, what do you have for us for next week? Well, let's see. Um, last week, um, Wes Anderson's new film, the French dispatch, uh, premiered and, uh, I'm a Wes Anderson fan and a Wes Anderson completist. So, uh, I want to go back to, uh, my, f- probably my favorite Wes Anderson film, at least one of my two or three favorites. And the one film that, if you look at any, I, and I actually did this, I looked at a whole bunch of top 10 Wes Anderson films just to see how my taste compared with, with others. And the film that we're going to watch, it usually comes up as either number one or number two. So it's The Grand Budapest Hotel uh, from, 20, from 2014. Um, I did see it in the theater, and I haven't seen it since, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. 
Well, you are talking to another Wes Anderson fan, so I'm very. I've only seen it once, uh, not in the theater, but pretty soon after it uh, was available streaming, um, and I'm really excited to to revisit this. I I have a particular love for his style, uh, even yeah. to the extent that I am a huge fan of Fantastic Mr. Fox as a Wes Anderson movie. Um, <laughs> big, big fan of that. So uh, I'm excited to watch that and to talk about that next week. Barrett, thank you so much for uh, recommending 8 Men Out, for having this conversation. Um, and we will be back next week to talk about the Grand Budapest Hotel in the video store. Mm-hmm.